0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to
0: Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're catching up on some of your messages in response to our episode about Christmas decorations first. Uh, Robert, uh, let's see, do you want to read this first one or should I?
1: Yeah, sure, I'll do this one. This one comes to us from Lucy. Loved your holiday inventions episode and wanted to write in that my parents still do many of the old and or dangerous traditions. (laughs) We put bubble lights in the tree every year when I was a kid. They still have some of those strings from the 90s, but they've also gotten replacement bulbs for burnt out ones over the years. These new ones are hopefully less toxic than the originals. The best, though, is live candles on the Christmas tree. My family is originally from Germany, and when my grandparents were first married, they studied in Germany for a year or two on my grandmother's Fulbright scholarship. They picked up their tradition of candles there and kept it up every year until they moved into a retirement home that would not allow it. Since then, my parents have taken over the tradition. The key is to get a fresh tree. Instead of buying it from a Christmas tree lot, we go out to a Christmas tree farm a day or two before Christmas Eve and cut down a fresh one. This means that when you light the candles a few days later, there is still so much moisture in the needles and branches that if a flame touches it, it just fizzles out. We always light the tree from top to bottom so that as we sit around singing Christmas carols and talking, the top candles burn out first and we can watch the shadows from the lower candles on the ceiling. Sometimes my dad will even get the ornaments hung so that the rising heat from a candle beneath it will make the ornament spin. Whoa! Obviously, we still have a pitcher of water nearby, but we've never had to use it. I've grown up with these traditions, so I sometimes forget that not everyone does them. Great to hear about the history behind them. I always love listening to you guys. Lucy.
0: Oh, well, that does sound very nice, Lucy, but uh, I still, I don't think I'd risk it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's a there's a story in my family and I asked around to see if I could find out who it was. But so this one's going to be one of those kind of like horrible third hand stories. But there's somebody I was connected to where the, the wife uh, brought with her German traditions and insisted on doing the, the candles. But then the, the, the husband was very suspicious of, of actual candles on a Christmas tree and would stand by uh, with a with a fire extinguisher aimed at the tree the whole time, just
0: ready for it to go up. I mean, you're going to do candles on the tree. Why not just, like, hang butane torches from the branches? (laughs) Uh, They make their own ornaments and candles.
1: All right. Well, it looks like Carney is still in the Christmas spirit and has another uh, one of these Lister mails for you, Joe.
0: Okay. This one comes from Rose. Rose says, hi, Robert and Joe. Loved your latest episode on the history of Christmas decorations. The talk about whether gingerbread houses are meant for eating brought back some early childhood memories. When I was a little kid in the 90s, my family decorated gingerbread houses every year, except we didn't use any actual gingerbread. My grandma would construct houses out of cardboard, which we would coat in frosting and decorate with candy and pretzels. Hmm. I, I think some might say that gingerbread and cardboard have negligible differences, uh, but, but that would be a, a, a true Grinch of a person who said that. Oh, yeah. Anyway. I mean, real
1: gingerbread, if you're using real ginger, you get that kind of like it's almost spicy. So it can it can really
0: work. Wait, are, are you supposed to use fresh ginger and gingerbread? I thought you were supposed to use ginger powder in baking. Maybe I don't know anything about this. Well, I
1: don't. I've never actually made it myself, so I'm, I'm I, I have no idea ultimately. But I know that generally you can taste the difference between real ginger and um and, and powdered ginger. And then, of course, I feel like yeah, I, I have had gingerbread. When a gingerbread is good, it tastes a little spicy, like mm-hmm. so. Okay, you know, where it kind of like bites you back a little bit.
0: Okay, I think that would probably be fresh ginger. Wait, you were saying real ginger though. Do you do you mean fresh ginger or is ginger powder not from a, not from real ginger? Surely it is. Uh,
1: Well, yeah. Well, when I say real ginger, you know, I'm I'm meaning fresh ginger. Okay, okay, okay. That's what I thought. Yeah, I mean, as I I don't, I don't know that there's actual imitation ginger out
0: there. There's imitation vanilla. There there's there's imitation stuff. Oh, no, true, true. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh to continue with Rose's message. Uh so we got the these houses made out of cardboard uh decorated with candy and pretzels. Picking up, they definitely weren't meant to be eaten. If I'm remembering right, they would sit out as a decoration for a while. Maybe people would steal a few pieces of candy off, and then we just threw them out after Christmas. Unfortunately, we stopped this tradition while I was still fairly young, but I have fond memories of it, though it was pretty weird in hindsight. Happy holidays, Rose. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's that much weirder than anything else, so it sounds kind of nice. Yeah, and then
1: you're not wasting the gingerbread this way, so I say go for it. All right, we have another one here. This one comes to us from Victoria. Victoria writes, I'm an environmental scientist, and I allow this in my home. Is it dumb? Absolutely. Why do we do it? Tradition. Q Fiddler theme. (laughs) And, of course, it is a picture of a Christmas tree uh, with
0: live candles, with with burning candles on it. They look pretty cool because the candles are twisty. I've never seen this before. They're like corkscrew shaped a little bit. I mean, very, very slightly corkscrew shaped.
1: And in in the photo, uh, a a gentleman that I believe is Victoria's husband is lighting it uh, because she continues. My German husband grew up placing real candles on a real conifer, lighting them with real fire and watching them burn to their bases without a trace of anxiety. He clings to this tradition harder than any other. And I don't mind living a little dangerously. We have some firm rules around this practice. Number one, the tree must never go thirsty. I pay more attention to this dead plant's hydration than that of my own body. The conifer will be less of a powder keg if the leaves don't dry out. We feel the tips before every lighting. If they're getting crunchy, the candles are not lit. Number two, everyone knows where the fire extinguisher is and how to use it. I acknowledge that this wouldn't be enough to put out a fully engulfed tree, but it is better than nothing. Number three, when lit, the candles are supervised at all times. This part can get a little boring. However, there's little else to do on Christmas Eve besides sipping scotch and staring at your potential doom. (laughs) Number four, after the holidays, take the discarded tree to the bonfire beach and burn it. Watching that thing shoot flames high into the air puts whole celebratory practices in perspective. Knowing the risk makes us more vigilant. Thank you both for the stimulating content. May your holidays be far less perilous than mine. Warm regards, Victoria.
0: Uh, the the regards sound very warm. Thank you for sharing this, Victoria. This is great, and I love the yeah. picture.
1: Yeah, this was a this was a great bit of listener mail.
0: Really love this one. Okay, how about this response? Going back to our episodes about spinning. Yeah, let's spin. Okay, this uh, this comes from Joe, a different Joe. Joe says, Dear Robert and Joe, I've been enjoying your recent episodes in listener mail on the science of spinning as it affects the human body. It's a fascinating topic. It was delightful to hear the perspective of a ballet dancer, ice skater, and pole dancer, but I'm surprised no one mentioned aerialists. I gotta say that did not even enter my mind. And in fact, I don't know if I would have known what that word meant before this mail. So, so thanks for bringing it up, Joe. Uh, yeah, it, I, I should
1: have known. I've seen aerialists perform before. I mean, I've I've uh-huh. certainly been to Cirque du Soleil, so I should have thought about the
0: the spinning that oh, takes place yeah. there. The Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Joe goes on. Aerialists, as you probably know, <laughs> as I didn't know, are the section of performance artists of the circus realm that perform aerial stunts on aerial apparatus. Many common apparatus, such as the hoop, lyra, and aerial straps, also test the brain and body. One extra weird apparatus is the Spanish web. The Spanish web is essentially a human lasso. One performer hangs from a thick rope some distance from the ground, while another performer assists in spinning the dangling performer in a giant circle. The aerialist in the air then performs stunts and tricks and so on. The spinning action is unique because the body isn't just turning on a single axis, but is also often moving in a slight orbit around the center, sometimes at high speed and with changing orientations. The head games are very interesting and take some practice, as you've said. Uh, One trick that many spinning aerialists use is to focus on something that isn't spinning in relation to the performer, such as the apparatus itself or their own hands or feet. It's similar in concept to the spotting technique that ballerinas use, but without having to turn the head. Since the apparatus itself keeps the performer from tipping, the aerialist can divert their focus unlike a ballerina that needs a reference point to stay balanced. Focusing the vision intently on the apparatus as opposed to the spinning uh, world behind it is a massive game-changer, and... Uh, as it slightly tricks the brain from being disoriented with the spinning room. Also, if one can't see their own body or apparatus, such, uh, such as in many aerial strap spins, the trick is to not focus on anything at all. Don't try to follow the spinning world in front of you, but fall into soft focus. Easier said than done. It takes practice. Other fun tricks to help with dizziness before spinning include eating lots of ginger or drinking ginger tea to prevent nausea. Ginger yet again. Uh, Also, if one does get dizzy and finds themselves with the spins, they can sometimes jump up and down to help with the motion. It won't do much if your spins are bad, but it seems to help some performers who overdo it momentarily for some reason. I just thought your listeners might also find this obscure life knowledge important as they happen to find themselves trapped inside a washer or never ending tilt-a-whirl. Thanks for all you guys do keep up the great work, Joe. And then Joe also sent a follow-up saying it was him again. And he sent some links to videos of artists performing Spanish web and aerial straps, fast spins in regards to human spinning. Very
1: cool. And uh, yeah, I like the ginger uh, uh, tidbit as well. Um, yeah, ginger can be can be very nice for uh, for you know slight feelings of nausea and uh, and stomach uh, illness. We we keep some uh, some ginger candies on hand in the the car and in the backpack whenever we're out and about just in case. Oh yeah. Oh, it maybe helps with car sickness too. Yeah, yeah. Or and if nothing else, it you know it tastes sweet and has a little gingery uh, buzz to it. So. All right, we have some uh, some additional uh, um, uh, listener mail here coming to us and these uh, bits concern Weird House Cinema, our Friday episodes that are uh, sort of a, a late night celebration of weird films as opposed to the general science and culture content that we put out. This comes to us from Chris. Hi Robert and Joe. First off, I love Weird House Cinema. I was a lapsed Stuff to Blow Your Mind fan, too many podcasts to listen to, who checked in for the Halloween episodes this year and was delighted to find Weird House Cinema in the feed. It perfectly scratches this itch for strange and or bad movie discussion with a science and philosophy angle. Please keep doing it i just finished the Ghost in the Machine episode. I'd forgotten all about this movie until I saw the title in my feed and immediately was reminded of the only scene I ever watched, the microwave scene. Oof. I was born in 1991 and was very young when I was flipping through channels and landed on HBO just in time to see a man getting his face cooked by an open microwave. I was sufficiently freaked out and changed the channel immediately. Ever since then, I've always had this tiny fear in the back of my mind when opening a microwave door... What if it didn't shut off? Is it going to cook my face? This even cropped up recently as my fiance has a habit of opening the microwave door to grab something while it's still running, trusting that the auto off will work as intended. Turns out our microwave door latch is a little hinky, and and it recently seemed to keep running as she opened it up and reached in to grab whatever she was heating up. I had flashbacks to Ghost in the Machine and was pretty freaked out, even though nothing had happened to her. We looked into it later, and it's most likely that the magnetron had shut off, but the fan and light kept running. Still, I asked that she just hit the off button before opening the door, just in case. Anyway, keep up the great work, and thanks for discussing this movie that gave me a lifelong phobia. I can't wait to tune in again next
0: Friday. Chris. I've actually seen a malfunction, a microwave that worked exactly like that, except in this case, it was every time you would, you would open the door, the light inside would come on and the rotating plate would start rotating. But I think it wasn't cooking.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate the the, the, the kind comments there. Uh, I'd certainly f- uh, feel you on had there being just too many podcasts to listen to at times. So, you know, hopefully we're not loading anybody up with too much. Uh, hopefully with the ideas, we just give you some, some choices, you know, um, and, uh, you know, if you want to just listen to, to Weird House, just listen to Weird House. You just want to come in and listen to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes, uh, go for it. I mean, I think I'm supposed to uh, advise everyone to, to subscribe, but I don't know. Maybe subscription doesn't work for everybody. I don't know. Do, do what you want. Do what feels good for you. As long as you're listening to some of our show, um, uh, I guess I'm happy.
0: Okay, I mentioned a few episodes back that I thought we had lost some emails that came in during September and October. I think somehow they just like disappeared from our inbox. Um, and our our longtime correspondent Jim in New Jersey actually resent several emails from that period, so we wanted to catch up with them now. The first one. Uh, Concerned our episodes on mushroom foraging, and we were talking about how uh, sometimes human foraging techniques are strangely kind of similar to AI, uh, to computer search algorithms – and so uh, Jim often writes in on, like, computer science-related topics, and, and he's got some comments here. So Jim says, Robert and Joe, you mentioned AI searching algorithms at the end of your Mushroom series. I can provide one. It's considered an AI algorithm, but it's really just an algorithm that I think I can describe sufficiently. It's called A-star search, and that's spelled, like, uh, in typography with the letter A and then an asterisk. It's a type of foraging algorithm through a network. Cities and the roadways connecting them are networks. There are many other types of networks, too. For example, social networks such as Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc., communication networks such as the Bell telephone system network and the internet, and so forth. The mathematical notion of these networks are called graphs. The concepts, properties, and algorithms that work for graphs in general can be applied to real networks, too. Uh, There are two traditional network searching or foraging algorithms, breadth-first and depth-first search. Let's say that it's Saturday morning and you and your spouse want to look for garage sales. You could start in your local neighborhood, then proceed to the next ones out and continue spreading out in concentric circles. This is breadth-first. But let's change strategy. This is a special Saturday. There's a group garage sale at a church a few neighborhoods away or in the town center. You would go straight to these locations and then visit additional garage sales on the way back. This is depth first. A star search is a little between the two. Let's look at this strategy. You start in your local neighborhood and visit the first garage sale. While you're there, you ask other buyers where they've been and what looks good out there. You evaluate their best suggestions. You would keep track of all the best garage sale tips and add new ones as you move from garage sale to garage sale. Once you're ready to move to another garage sale, you you go to the one that shows the best promise on your tips list, even if it means driving across town. This is the essence of A Star Search. Though I don't know for sure how algorithms in navigation apps, such as driving directions, work, I would consider using A-star search. Let's say that you want to drive from location A to location B. The algorithm starts at A and explores the local roads, almost like tendrils of mold you've described before. The heuristic it uses to find the best path will be how close you are to B. Direct paths will get first priority, but it won't ignore paths that move further away from B either. That's because an initial direction that moves away from B might eventually reach a highway ramp or provide a much faster trip to B, even if driving in the wrong direction. Ants foraging kind of do this too. As the ants come back from food sources, they drop pheromone trails. As the ants confirm the food source, they make the pheromone trail stronger so more ants will exploit it. However, There are still foraging ants that don't follow the strong scent. They're looking for new sources, since the good source might eventually fade. Ant foraging can be thought of as a a type of distributed A-star search. The A-star search Wikipedia page has too many videos that illustrate the algorithm well. I especially like the example of finding the most efficient train route across the USA. This very much resembles mold tendrils. I first encountered A-Star Search when I took an online algorithm course taught at Princeton. A-Star Search was an assignment in uh, solving a tile slider puzzle. I'm proud to say that the search tree illustration in the assignment was originally created by me as I was working with the professor as an online TA, and they have included it in the assignment now. Uh, And he signs off Jim in New New Jersey, but not really near Princeton. (laughs) Uh, And then Jim also has a follow-up that ties into the same email that came out after our episode about orcs. Uh, Remember in the episode on orcs, we talked about the orcs and hobbits problem, which was about uh, a problem-solving theory. Uh, This question about how people psychologically tend to adapt when they encounter problems in this this, uh, puzzle where you need to get orcs and hobbits across a river. And one of the things that was discovered about this was the perils of what's known as the hill-climbing algorithm. It's a common algorithm that is used in some computer programs, but we also just use it in our brains, which is – Uh, You basically have a goal state that you want to get to, and it's something like you know get to the highest possible altitude, and then you take a step and you see if you're closer, and if so, you keep going in that direction, and if not, you turn back, and you keep doing that until you get to the top of the hill. But the problem with the hill climbing algorithm is that if you're in a landscape with multiple hills and valleys – You will tend to just get stuck at the top of the nearest hill and you will not explore hills that could go even higher if you are willing to go down first to get to them. And so this is an illustration of that when we're trying to solve problems or be creative, sometimes we need to apparently backtrack in the short term to reach a better outcome in the long term. And Jim follows up by saying, Robert and Joe, Joe's description of the hill climbing algorithm is exactly what occurs with A-star search, as I had written about previously with mushroom searching. The hill climbing technique is very nearsighted. It can only look at the next potential step and not take in the entire landscape. This is not a bad technique. Hill climbing exploits what appears to be the best path forward uh, toward a solution. But as the example captured so well, you might be hiking up the wrong hill. Joe introduced randomness, but there's another algorithmic technique, which I mentioned in my last email as well. That technique is to introduce a handicap to the solution path. The more you exploit a given solution path based on hill climbing or any other heuristic, the more expensive it becomes as that solution path gets longer. You may run into a situation where the solution path gets so long and the handicap is so crippling that you abandon the exploited path and venture off to explore another part of the solution space. While this isn't officially adding randomness, it does introduce the concept of hopping around uh, in the solution space and not becoming fixated upon one possible solution. It's a trade-off slash balance of exploiting a promising path versus exploring new ones, Jim in New Jersey. And, you know, I got to say, I really like this, and I think it could be applied outside of just pure computer algorithms as well. If you think about – um. You know, whenever you found a solution that works uh, to do something, or at least works so far, maybe try out the idea that uh, every time you repeat a working solution again, you you do it again the same way you've done it before. Maybe it gets a little bit more expensive, like you're you're having to pay an increasing sum every time you do that, which will eventually encourage you to to. You know, make sure you're not missing out on better solutions that are available to you just because you, you've got one solution that you know sort of works. Interesting.
1: Interesting. All right. Here's another one from Jim in New Jersey. Uh, this is a, an, in response to our episode on the bed, the invention of the bed. Robert and Joe, you didn't mention how astronauts sleep in space in your bed episode. Since there is no gravity, they can sleep almost anywhere, but they tether themselves so as not to float around in the environment. Private crew quarters on the International Space Station are only slightly bigger than a phone booth. Part of that includes a sleeping bag that tethers to the wall. But I think they can sleep anywhere on the station. Without gravity, their arms tend to float in front of them. Uh, and he included um, an illustration of, of what one of these setups consists of, and yeah, this is interesting. I, I, I'd read that about having to strap your arms down before. That's that's interesting. Like you could, if you don't strap them down, your arms are just kind of floating free in front of you. And uh, and I think I've read before they can be kind of like this kind of ghostly effect of like whose hands are these?
0: Uh-huh. You know? They poke you in the eye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Oh, and then Jim follows up and says, I didn't state the obvious in my original email. There are no beds to speak of in space. You don't need them when there's no gravity. The, their beds are closer to hammocks. As for my subject line about snoring in space, which uh, I include as a joke, uh, is more interesting than a joke. Astronauts don't snore in space either. The lack of gravity doesn't block airways as much.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Now, that's, yeah, I had not heard that. So that's that's pretty interesting. Um, But also interesting that they're basically uh, strung up in hammocks uh, because I, I do think we could come back and do an entire episode based on the invention of the hammock. There's some really interesting stuff there.
0: OK, this next message comes from Heather. Heather says, hey, y'all, I frequently binge on your podcast episodes as you happen to be some of the only people uh, with whom I can delve deeply into obscure and common topics to the point of sheer exhaustion. And for me, intellectual bliss. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's fun. Um, Heather says, I just heard your December 9th, 2020 episode of The Artifact, The Poison Tooth. I love it. Today it was, for me, a great appetizer before a full-length Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode. I imagine on a busy day, this kind of informative quickie will make a satisfying mental snack. Thank you for keeping me well-fed with an ever-increasing variety of mind-blowing content. Without you, my intellect would certainly stunt, atrophy, and shrivel up into a pathetic shadow of its former potential. Oh, that's extreme.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I guess she's kidding. She says, uh, "No, nah, but seriously, life is better with you in it, so keep going. Thank you for your hard work, and uh, all the best to you in the coming year, Heather. Well, thank you, Heather. Thank you so much for the kind words, and we're, we're, we're glad we could uh, be there for you.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad to hear hear uh, some uh, positive feedback on the the artifact episodes. They are kind of just sort of short form audio blog blog posts, yeah. and we're just uh, switching back and forth uh, for the most part uh, on doing these. So uh, yeah, we're going to keep at it, and uh, yeah, it should be a great place to to discuss very specific ideas, you know, you know particular uh, items. Uh, particular points in time that sort of thing uh and and just discuss them briefly instead of devoting an entire episode to them.
0: Oh yeah, I feel like they're a great outlook cuz we used to come across things like this all the time where we'd find something that we found really interesting but just like wasn't wasn't a whole episode worth of anything, you know, it was yeah. something that might make 5 or 10 minutes worth of content and uh, and here you go. I mean, th- this is a good outlet for it. I-, I feel like back in the day you used to turn things like that into blog posts. Uh, I only ever wrote a few posts for the blog, but, uh, you, y- you had great blog posts back on the old website when that was alive. But, uh, n- now I feel like this is a really good alternative to the blog of, of old.
1: Yeah. I'm going to have to resurrect some of those blog posts of old, Yeah, uh, you know, pull their bodies out of the the muck, see if I can, uh, 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 resurrect the flesh and uh, Uh make it march off into the podcast
0: feed for me our uh, our old blog and the website have turned into bog bodies now yeah (laughs) but if one knows the appropriate magic uh, they can be revived
1: all right uh, here's another one this one comes to us from jeremy hey guys and or staff member reading this uh well (laughs) the The, that's nope. seth basically it's just us and seth
0: but we um, don't uh, i think maybe he's wondering if we have like a dedicated like employees or something to go through our listener mail for us unfortunately no no now we do have we
1: we, we never give him a shout out uh, but sam uh is in charge of our social media stuff and he
0: does all oh, that true. so we don't have to so
1: yes uh massive kudos to for, to sam sam uh, you do an that.
0: amazing job you 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 really make my life better by allowing me to not really look at twitter or facebook Right.
1: All right. So uh, anyway, Jeremy continues. I've never actually emailed any of the podcasts I've listened to over the years. So this is a little strange for me. But I felt I had to let you guys know uh, just how great the new sideshow is. I've been listening to stuff to blow your mind since back in the Allison Loudermilk days uh, from uh, stuff from the science lab uh, and have never missed an episode. The way you guys can discuss the real or possible science of anything from the mundane to to mythological creatures to world changing technologies never fails to catch my interest and keep me engaged in the world around us. Being a huge movie buff, especially for terrible B-movies, I can't tell you how the weekly edition of Weird House Cinema is. Um, I think they meant to mean um, how great. I'm going to put in great. How how, how spectacular. <laughs> how life-altering. Um, anyway, they continue. Even my podcast-free wife is happy because I can listen to you guys discuss the movies as an alternative to boring her with the behind-the-scenes details of Troll 2. <laughs> She made it about 15
0: minutes in before, quote, remembering she had errands to run. (laughs) Now, wait a minute. Is that 15 minutes into the movie Troll 2? 15 minutes into you talking about it or 15 minutes into our episode?
1: I took it to mean maybe the movie. Okay. Uh, Like she made it 15 minutes into the movie. Okay. Uh, Because, yeah, Troll 2 is not for everybody. Um, They continue. Anyway, I just wanted to thank you guys for the great work, and I hope Weird House Cinema will turn into a permanent addition to the podcast. I wish you guys the best and hope you keep staying safe. Thanks for reading.
0: Uh, That's the plan for now.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's as permanent as anything. So, uh, yeah, we're going to keep doing it. All right. We're going to go ahead and um, and turn off Carney. We're going to we're going to seal the listener mail mailbag for the week. Uh, But, yeah, we're going to continue to do these, uh, what, every Monday, we're going to, or at least as long as we have uh, listener mail to read, uh, we're going to keep doing listener mail episodes and try and keep this a regular thing where we're having more of a dialogue uh, with the listeners. So keep it coming. Uh, Keep writing in with your feedback to recent episodes of the show, to older episodes. You know, you hear a vault episode and you like an idea uh, in there, have some feedback. Don't be shy about writing in, even if it's uh, an older piece. Um, You know, write in about Weird cinema, write in about the, the, the shorties we do, any, anything. Uh, write in about episodes you'd like to hear. Uh, all of that is fair game. In the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever that is, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. You can also go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, and uh, that will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for our page. Uh, Once you are there, you'll find a little tab there. You can click on the store, and that'll take you over to a place where you can buy some T-shirts and stickers and whatnot that have our logo on it or a cool monster design. So check that out if you want as well.
0: Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.